With the recent tragedy and mass murder of 59 people in Las Vegas, we've been forcefully reminded that this is not God's world. Tremendous, tremendous tragedy that dealt there. You don't need to turn there, but in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, something you know very well, mentioned just here, it says, In which you walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who, which now works in the sons of disobedience. These things happen because there is a very strong, dominant force exacting its power on the world around us. And the children of disobedience, those who don't understand that Satan, the devil, has the kind of power he does. It's, it's rather fascinating, in one sense, the number of people that were not willing to profess that they believe in God, but talk about the evils of the world. And why would we have an evil spirit if we don't have a God? Where did, where would the evil spirit come from if there was no such thing? And authorities are now frantically searching for a motive. Why would someone do such a monstrous thing as firing on thousands of people that were gathered and killing as many as, as he could? Such a, an act goes far beyond any human motive. You know, there may have been a reason in his mind for doing this. But one cannot really come up with a human motive that's valid for such a terrible act. Sex acts are certainly of Satan. In John chapter 8, verse 44, tells us there Christ said that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. And Cain murdered his brother Abel. That may have been, that was the first of what may have been millions of such acts, not even counting the wars. We don't know what has gone on for the last 6,000 years, the kinds of violence has been there, but beyond the wars, this is just the latest example of the madness of the world around us. Although it isn't classified, officially, as far as I can tell, as a terrorist act. But for all of the people involved there listening to that concert, I would say they were terrorized. They were terrified. And you listen to some of the interviews, the words, the emotions that they came through as we were coming down to the from the airport the other day listening to uh, some of the news. That, uh, I think it was some, someone was talking about going to sleep, and I wonder how would one go to sleep that night if they managed to live through the onslaught that was perpetrated on them. They were certainly terrified, and it seems that in spite of all of the effort that our authorities are putting forward to try to prevent such terrible things from happening, it just seems like there is a, an undercurrent of emotion where we are simply waiting for the next act to fall. How bad will it be? What's going to happen the next time where unsuspecting victims are terrorized or they're victimized by someone walking through an airport. You know, you, you know, I remember the gentleman in Fort Lauderdale 
Uh, we were, were uh, there was a, uh, a terrorist that uh, killed people at the Fort Lauderdale Airport uh, about a year ago. And we were traveling that afternoon, and there were police vehicles by the dozens descending on the airport, and just wondering what was going on. And, of course, later on we heard. And immediately the conversation is because you and I travel, don't we? You know, many of you took an airplane here. And you might think where you look around, if you remember it, is where would I go if someone started doing that? And how many of us now want to go to outdoor concerts? I mean, it changes the way we live and the way we think because we recognize that it is not God's world. What kind of world? Where does the world find itself today? I just want to mention a few of the international things. Obviously, front and center is North Korea, creating tension throughout the world because we simply don't know what might be done next. There are threats that are being made, and one begins to wonder, are they idle threats? Is it all propaganda? Is it all just bluff? Or would someone pull that trigger? Now, we understand prophecy. We don't expect everything that the world might think will happen. We think we understand better what will eventually happen before too long, we hope. We have renewed strife with Russia, seemingly at every every turn in the political chess game that we play with them. We have the confrontation with China in the, in the South China Sea. The U.S. is outside, on the outside looking in with regard to the United, or the uh, European Union. We have our conflict with Iran and Iran with Israel. And Israel, of course, is always at the vortex of the international scene. We even now have a confrontation, supposedly, with Venezuela. How many of you saw that they are preparing for war with the United States? They think that we may attack them. The world is on edge. And with what we've been through weather-wise, with Harvey, many of you were affected by that. It is rather, it's more, it's far beyond coincidence when we realize what did not happen to God's people. Uh, I lived in Houston for six years, and I remember that there were certain areas that flooded even during times of heavy rain. But to my knowledge, there was no severe damage to any of God's people in in South Texas. I'm sure there were some that I don't know about, but nothing of any great tragedy that I'm aware of. And, of course, we had the hurricane that threatened Florida, and we evacuated and uh, got out of there because it, uh, after going through one hurricane in 1983 in Texas, I didn't want to go through one in Florida, especially a Category 4 or 5. And it could have been so much worse than having congregations in, in near Tampa on the west coast of Florida and a congregation in Pompano Beach on the east coast of Florida and people living in the middle of the state and watching what the hurricane did and realizing that no one, of any of the three congregations that we serve, there was any severe damage. And in one case where the hurricane actually turned inland, uh, north of Fort Myers, and went directly over members' houses that were living in prefabricated homes, and they went home from shelters to find the water still worked, the electricity still worked, and the house was not damaged. 
And the reason they leave prefab homes is because those are some of the most dangerous places to be in the midst of a hurricane. But God protect us. But if you look at what's happened and the number of hurricanes that were there, there were all kinds of hyperbole about how many hurricanes there were at one time that had never seen these things. We find these, these things happening to us. And, of course, we have an accelerating moral decay and degeneration in our society. And we think, how fast can it go? And then we just have to wait till the next day or so and find out how much worse it can be. We find a world that's quite unlike anything that we've ever seen before. Why is that? Well, we talked about that a moment ago. But over in Second Timothy, you might turn there. In Second Timothy chapter 3, we'll read verses 1 through 4. But know this, in verse 1, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, and unthankful and unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal. I think that word very well fits what just transpired in Las Vegas. Despisers of good, they're traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It just quickly describes the society that is extant around us. That's why the world is the way it is. There are, you can put these in your notes, I won't turn there. But there are two other references to children of disobedience. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, and also in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. And in the context, the reason I think that's relevant is, obviously this was on Paul's mind, or inspired to be on Paul's mind when he wrote, because two of those references to children of disobedience are in Ephesians, and Colossians was written about the same time. And God inspired those words to show that the spirit that's there is working on the world. And people respond to it without even sometimes knowing why. Back in Micah. Micah. Chapter 2. Verses 1 and 2. Micah chapter 2, verse 1. says, Woe to those who devise iniquity. They plan it out, premeditated. They devise iniquity. And work out evil on their beds. Maybe that seems foreign. Hopefully that seems foreign to us. We don't understand how someone could lay down on their bed and think about, plan out works of violence. At morning light, they practice it. Say so they do devise it in the evenings and at night. The next day, they do it. We live under the threat of having our identity stolen. With what happened recently with one of the credit bureaus. Millions of people are at risk. And someone planned that. 
They thought through, how can I break into private information and I can take, in their minds, hopefully take advantage, potentially thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, work real hard at not working <laughs> in order to get something that was not, that was not theirs. They devise these things. They plan it because it is in the power of their hand. They, if they can do it, they will do it. And everything good that technology may bring forth, there is, there is a number of people who will try to find a way to misuse that and abuse that power. They cover fields and take them by violence, also houses, and seize them. So they oppress a man in his house and a man in his inheritance. It is an unjust and an evil world, and it's all rooted in Satan's influence over and his deception of the world. And because of that deception and that, that influence, the world is going to be brought to the brink of cosmicide. Now, we really can't fully imagine that. At least I can't. In the world of affluence that you and I enjoy compared to the rest of the world, it's hard to imagine Literally thinking about the world on the brink of total annihilation. But that's going to come to pass. It's what God prophesies. So I would ask us, how anxious are you and I to change that? Change agents. You ever heard the phrase change agents? That's what you and I have a chance to be. To bring about change. We just celebrated a few days ago, actually five days ago, the time when Satan's influence will come to a screeching halt, come to a dead end, at least for a thousand years. Just rehearse, I want you to go through this quickly, but just rehearse a few things out of Revelation. You don't need to turn to every one of them, but just mention these things, just talking about what happened, what what will happen, and discussed on the Day of Trumpets. But in Revelation 11, verse 15, he talks here about the seventh angel sounding. Revelation 11, 15, I'll read it. It Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That seventh trump sounds that the... That's basically an augural sound for Christ assuming control of this world, announcing his coming. And, of course, after that happens, we find in chapter 15, verses 1 and 6, and I won't read that, but we find here that when that happens, there are seven last plagues that are poured out. And after those are done, in chapter 16... Verse 17, it says, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. In other words, now, the seventh trump sounds, the plagues are poured out, it's done. Christ has been announced. And then we can find in chapter 19, Verses one, verse 1 and then verses 5 and 6. It says, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, 
Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Verse 5, Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all of you, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as a sound of many waters and as a sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Christ returns and takes over the government of the world. If you want a title for the sermon, you could put the reality of God's kingdom. This morning I'd like to talk about the reality of God's kingdom and its cause and some of the results that we can expect and to which we can look forward. One of the first results of Christ's return is his deliverance of Israel. In Micah chapter 2 and 3, God talks about the punishments that he is going to bring on Israel for its sins. They're all part of the end of the age. Again, some of the references I just made in Revelation are rehearsed there in Micah chapters 2 and 3. But then in Isaiah chapter 10, Isaiah chapter 10, we'll begin reading in verse 20. It says, It shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped the house of Jacob, those that survive the wrath of Satan in the first two and a half years, and then the wrath of God pictured in the last great day, or the, the day of the Lord, rather, the three and a half year period, there will be survivors such as have escaped of the house of Jacob, will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Eternal, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. And though his people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. There were a lot of them to begin with, but many of them will die through the great tribulation and the day of the Lord. The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of the land. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite you, or he shall strike you with a rod and lift up his staff against you in the manner of Egypt. And for yet a little while, and the indignation will cease, as will my anger and their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will stir up a scourge for him like the slaughter of Midian. And then in verse 27, he says, It shall come to pass in that day that his burden will be taken away from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck and the yoke of the destroyer because of the anointing oil. God is going to deliver Israel from its captivity, from their captivity. He mentions the same thing in chapter 27. And we're going to be rehearsing quite a few things in the book of Isaiah this morning. In chapter 27, a couple of verses, verses 12 and 13. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. So it shall be in that day the great trumpet will be blown. 
again referencing the very end of the age. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcast in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Eternal in the holy mount at Jerusalem. God is going to deliver physically some of his his chosen people, were chosen through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, deliver some of them. In chapter 11, let's go back to chapter 11 of Isaiah, verse 11. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Eternal will set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who were left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar and from Hamath and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. He's going to bring them back from wherever they've been scattered. Verse 16. And there will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria, as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. God is going to deliver his people physically and bring them back to the land that he had promised to them. We might ask, why why is God going to do this? For that matter, why does God do any of these things that he does? In dealing with us, in dealing with the world, it's all part of this great plan that we are celebrating this particular time. But let's turn over to Ezekiel chapter 36. It's an interesting phrase that God uses in many, many places, and I wonder... Sometimes how many of us stop to think about what this phrase means. I, frankly, I, I wondered about it for a long time, thought about it, meditated on it, trying to figure out exactly what kind of depth is there because it's used so many times in the Bible. But Ezekiel chapter 36, we're going to read several verses here. Verse 16 it says, Moreover, the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man... When the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. I'm going to skip through some of this. Verse 18, Therefore I poured out my fury on them, for the blood they had shed on the land and for their idols, which they had defiled by defiling it. So this is why God is going to punish them. He said in verse 19, So I scattered them among the nations, and I judged them according to their ways and their deeds at the end of the verse. Verse 21 but I had concern for my holy name. Thought about that. Verse 22, toward the middle of the verses, Thus says the eternal God, I do not do this for your sake. He's not doing this because of Israel's righteousness or goodness. O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake. I'm doing this because it's part of my plan. Because I want to expand and grow my family. I'm doing it because that's my purpose. Because I'm a righteous God. I'm a loving God in spite of what the world may think of the God of the Old Testament being 
mean and cruel, harsh. But God says, I have a plan. I'm doing this for my name's sake. Because I have this purpose behind what I do. Verse 23, and I will sanctify my great name. I will help the world understand what kind of God I am. Verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you. That was, I'm going to change how you think. I will put my spirit within you, and I'll cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. The first part of verse 29 says, I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. 31, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. I do this for my own name's sake. And he will, by working with his plan, God thought about this perhaps a long time. We can use that, use that word so much. And planning out all of his work, all of his creation, and how he was going to grow his family. He did this for his name's sake, his purpose, his plan. For all that his name represents is why he brings Israel back and begins to set up his kingdom. What will change when all that happens? These change agents that we have a chance to be in Revelation 11. We read this a moment ago. Verse 15 again, it says here, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of God. That's to say, He's going to establish the government of God on the earth. Mr. Armstrong and Dr. Meredith have shared that comment so many times that it's all about government. And Christ is going to set up the government of God. Do we understand the significance of that verse, that the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of Christ, of God and His Christ? Again, something that you and I are promised a share in. If we adhere to God's way of life, God has to do that. The key is government. It tells us back in Jeremiah 10:23. Again, I won't turn there, but it's not in man to direct his own steps. We don't know how to manage our lives on our own. Isaiah 57, 59, verse 8. This is the way of peace they don't know. We can't figure out how to have peace. We talk about it. And we say we want it, and yet somehow in the midst of various issues, we have sometimes dozens of small conflicts at one time. We've had two almost indescribable wars, and we fear, the world does fear for another one. But God is going to set up a government 
that works. His, his government will do what all human governments have never been able to do. And every time we have an election, what do we hear about? It's time for change. <laughs> and yes, it changes. It gets worse. Things do not improve. The real change that Christ will bring will be for the better with no end. The kingdom of God will be a righteous government. I'd like to just mention three, three things. What makes that kingdom righteous? What makes that government righteous? That's certainly apart from the whole concept of just saying it's a righteous government. But one, the first point, is we'll have righteous leaders. Christ at the very top. He will be the king of kings, lord of lords. Over in Revelation 20, he won't be by himself. Just a couple of scriptural references here to him sharing that responsibility. Revelation 20, verse 4, talking about the first resurrection. It says, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness in Jesus and for the word of God. Those who had died obeying God and obeying Christ. Those that had been faithful to the Christian way of life. Who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their, or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Righteous leaders given eternal life and sharing the responsibility of creating and administering a righteous government over the world. Back in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. Matthew 19. Verse 28, just one verse here. Again, righteous leaders. So Jesus said to them, and he's talking to the disciples at this point who became apostles. And they've given up everything, and they ask in verse 11, you know, we've left everything. What's in it for us? What can we look forward to receiving? And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, in the, in the resurrection, when I return, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Righteous leaders administering God's government here on the earth. In Luke 19, Verse 12, we find here the parable of the minas. This parable is a promise. It's a promise to you and to me. If we are willing to use the gifts that God provides each one of us in supporting his work, following his will, obeying his law. And he said, verse 12, he says, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And so he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. Use 
the things that I give you. Use my spirit. Use your, your resources in a righteous way. Do business till I come. But the citizens hated, you know, hated him. They sent a delegation after him saying, we will not do, you know, this man says. Goes on and we realize what happens here. These people that have been given these opportunities at 10 minus, they were given authority. Some cases, 10 cities, five cities. Tremendous responsibility. And most of us kind of wither mentally, at least I do. (laughs) Just being a site coordinator is a little bit intimidating. (laughs) The idea of being over cities, that I, I find that daunting to even consider. But he says, if you and I do what we're supposed to do, live the way he tells us to live, you and I are going to be given tremendous opportunities and responsibilities. And because he will have his spirit, we will be spirit beings. You and I will be able to do those things. You and I will be part of administering a righteous government as righteous leaders. Now, point number two is we're going to be administering and executing righteous law. We all know the scripture in Romans 7, verse 12. It is God's law. We know the Ten Commandments, but Paul describes it here in verse 12. He says, therefore, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Many of our laws really don't produce righteousness. It's whatever equity or fairness that man can imagine. And sometimes those things are not fair. And sometimes there are deliberate efforts by some of our leaders to pass laws or to pass statutes or administrative decisions that favor certain elements of our society. And they don't do these quickly and they do it sort of under the table. But God's law is perfect. We find over in Psalm 19. In Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. It changes us. It gives us direction. It puts a little corral around us. It puts a a barrier between right and wrong. Helps us know what we should be doing. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the eternal is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. We'll be administering righteous law. It will help make the government that God sets up righteous. And the third point that we're going to use to make a righteous kingdom, righteous government, is that of righteous education. We'll be educating the world. The world, when Christ returns, the world won't know the truth. And they will have to be taught. Isaiah chapter 30 helps us understand that. 
You know, it used to be in this in our society, and it wasn't that long ago, that to be a teacher was an honored profession. And I have a daughter-in-law who's a teacher, and I don't think she views her profession as one that's honored. Too much combat from the students. Too much combat from defensive parents who just are convinced that Johnny or Sally could never do something like that. I remember, and many of you do, because again, is that, you know, when I went home from school and if I had done something wrong in school, I didn't, my mom didn't ask, what did the teacher do? <laughs> no, it's what did you do to disrespect the teacher or to disobey the teacher? But teaching is an honorable profession. And we will have that privilege in God's world of being teachers. In Isaiah 30, verse 20. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, there are going to be times God will deal with the people and helping them to change. But once that is through with the millennium, Beginning, it says, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore. We're going to be apparent to them. But your eyes shall see your teachers. You and I are going to teach God's way of life. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk you in it. Wherever you turn to the right hand or wherever you turn to the left, God is going to provide supervision through his saints. We're going to teach, and we're going to supervise, and we're going to protect those that are still flesh and blood from themselves. Show them God's way of life. They won't be in a corner. We will see their teachers. In Zephaniah chapter 3, in Zephaniah chapter 3, we read verse 9 and verse 13. Zephaniah 3, verse 9. For then I will restore to the people a pure language, that they may all call, they all may call on the name of the Lord, to serve him with one accord. And we have talked about this for many years, and we have this pure language. But if you're, if your margin, just want to bring out another aspect of this. Your margin shows that that word language can also be rendered lip. And it really transmits more than just a language, but it means the right kind of language. A pure word. Verse 13 explains it. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and they'll speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. It's going to be the right kind of knowledge. There'll be no deceit. There'll be no lying. There'll be no misrepresenting in order to take advantage. We will teach God's law. It will be pure. You'll hear instructions that are right. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8. I won't turn there right now, but Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8, it talks about hearing the instruction of your father. Now, that was a... a 
proverb that really is directed at human beings primarily, to, but I think the principle certainly carries over to God's kingdom that we're going to encourage and explain to people they need to hear the instruction of their Father, of God. Here is the way. Walk you in it. Don't turn off the path. You know, we, in this life, because we're human, Satan's world, you know, God does work with us, and, you know, we, you and I, do we ever stray from the path a little bit? And God has to kind of <laughs> nudge us, nudge us back, and He does it in, in mercy. Certain trials or difficulties may present themselves as remind us, well, that wasn't a wise decision. That was a compromise, or that was a wrong attitude. We're going to be teaching people the right way when we're reminding them to hear the instruction of their father. In Psalm 22, interesting account. Psalm 22. Verse 27. Verse 27, and all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust, physical beings, shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. In other words, we do, they're mortal at that point. But a posterity shall serve him. And it will be recounted of the eternal to the next generation. That the truth and the right way of life will actually be passed from one generation to another. You know, one of the greatest challenges of being parents is to set a right example. Have the right kind of influence on our children to teach them God's way and show them by example that it works. Find here, it says here, it'll be recounted of the eternal to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. That he has done this. That God's way of life works. It works. And parents will be teaching their children. And as they go through the millennium, you'll be able to look around them and say, this is all good. We have that phrase, don't we? How are things? Oh, it's all good. (laughs) Well, it, it will be good in God's kingdom. Because we will be teaching the right way of life. And we'll be setting the, as spirit beings, the teachers, we're going to be encouraging them and showing them the right way of life. And then as, even as it works, they themselves will pass that from one generation to another. Those are just three things that I wanted to discuss that are elements, key elements, really, in the result of a righteous people working with others, a righteous people that in turn become what? Righteous nations. And as they become Righteous nations, what can they do with one another? 
they can coexist in peace. Peace is going to be a consequence of God's way of life and God's government. The key of all of this, of course, the key to it all, is the return of Jesus Christ. I would like to look then, take a brief tour through parts of Isaiah to help us understand the greatness of Christ and the kingdom that he's going to lead in establishing. He will use all of us if we adhere to his way of life. And we have the promise with God's spirit, we have this earnest, this down payment, this guarantee that he gave us at baptism and laying on of hands. We have this promise that we can share in this. So let's turn over to the book of Isaiah. Chapter 2. The book of Isaiah is often referred to as the kingdom book, the millennial book, because God did inspire Isaiah to write a great deal about this. And that the repetition of the various things that occur throughout the book, and I'm going to use some that may be a little less familiar and some that are very familiar in going through this, but reciting these things and referring to these these items helps should help us to understand that God wants to reinforce that this is going to happen. Sometimes, even in the desperate times in which we live, the kingdom can seem a bit far away, a bit unreal, because we all have to deal with the business of living. We have our physical challenges. We have our financial challenges. And somehow we think it sure be nice to be different in God's kingdom, but when will that come? But God says it's very real, and he gives these holy days to reinforce this, to make us understand the reality that is coming. It is only a matter of time, and we don't know exactly when, but it's only a matter of time. It will come to pass. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days, our time, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. The symbolism, the type there is that God's house, his government, his kingdom will be greater than all of the other Kingdoms are nations of the world, even above the hills, the the smaller entities that comprise the world. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the eternal. Let's go up to the house of God. Let's go to the government of God, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. We talked about that a moment ago, that he's ministering righteous law, contributing to a righteous kingdom. And the word of the eternal from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. 
People do learn war. Our nations have what are called war colleges. They go there to learn how to fight, how to kill, what strategies they should use. And there are many history books even referring to talking about this, about Napoleon, who was eventually defeated, but that Napoleon was a great war strategist. And his strategies, strategies were used for decades. Of course, technology brought a major change to those things. People learn war. We're going to have to learn peace. Because as the God's way of life expands and grow, people grow into a righteous life, they will get along in peaceful neighborhoods. And peaceful people and righteous people, again, make righteous nations. And righteous nations can coexist peacefully. And they won't learn war anymore. In Isaiah... Chapter 11. Isaiah 11. Verse 1. Prophecy about Christ. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow of his, out of its roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. We have, in limited measure, but we have some of those things today, don't we? If with God's spirit and God, the understanding that God has given us, we have, it says here, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Yet we have a measure of wisdom in God's church. We have a measure of understanding of what God is doing. We understand so much more than the world because of God's mercy and calling any one of us. We have some of that. We have the spirit of knowledge and we have the fear of the Lord, which we are hoping to grow in as we meet one of the purposes that Mr. Weston mentioned last night that we keep the Feast of Tabernacles to learn to fear God. We have those things. Not the measure we will have in God's kingdom, but we have them right now. What don't we have what's mentioned here? We have the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Spirit of counsel. We have that. We have a purpose. But it also says here the spirit of might. You and I don't have a lot of might. Revelation 3, in talking about what the churches says, that you have a little strength. That will change when you and I are spirit beings. You and I will have the power of God to administer his way of life. And the Christ, of course, at the head. He's the one who's going to lead the effort the administration, that we will be part of that family. Verse 3, His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and He shall not judge by the sight of His eyes, nor decide by the hearing of His ears. We'll talk a little bit about that later in the in the feast. When I have one more service. We'll talk about 
this judgment, judging. But God is going to do it. Christ is going to do it. And we are going to do it carefully. It says, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. That is, in behalf of those who are meek. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The characteristics of being totally trustworthy, being righteous and being faithful. We're going to follow the example of Jesus Christ. We're going to be able to, again, do these things that Christ is doing, mentioned in verse verse 2. And then he says, Major talks about these things that are going to change physically. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child, the babies, the small ones, shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. There will not be any harm come to them. And they shall not hurt and destroy in all my holy mountain, in my government, in my administration, my righteous government. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Full of the knowledge of the Lord. As the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a rod, a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner for the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. Clearly referring to the fact that God is going to be offering salvation to all of mankind. Not just Israel, not just his physically chosen people, but everyone. And it says here, in his resting place, this kingdom will be one of glory. Over in chapter 32. Verse 15, this will come about because of God's Spirit in people as well as spirit beings. Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. In other words, what would be considered wilderness, which is just kind of open land, no produce there necessarily, just a little bit wild territory. It says the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, producing bounty, a prosperous world. As Mr. Weston mentioned last night, we have this chance of using more money than we would normally spend in eight or ten days. We're a little more carefree about what we buy what we eat. Hopefully not misusing it, as he mentioned, but we have plenty. We get to picture a time of plenty. But the fruitful field, what would normally be plowed and and farmed, is going to be like a forest. It'll be so productive, it'll be like a forest. 
Lots of things resulting from God's way of life, good things. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field everywhere. God's way of life will permeate everything and everyone. The work of righteousness will be peace. That's the result. That's the goal. And the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. Who in here doesn't lock their door at night? Who doesn't lock their car? <laughs> That's too bad. <laughs> Who doesn't lock their car? When we were, you know, if you leave your keys in the car, you're held accountable for your car being stolen. Now, the, the old saying is locks are for honest people. Because if someone really wants in your house or, you know, they want your car, even if it's locked, they can figure that out. So it's to keep out, it's to reduce the temptation is why we have locks. But it's also to give us a little bit of peace of mind. You know, we, we close the Venetian blinds, we draw the, you know, we draw the curtains, turn out all the lights, lock all the doors. And I have known some people who go around each, each, periodic, you know, each day to make sure all the windows are locked. They know they're locked, but I want to check them one more time. Because we don't live in a peaceful world. We don't live in a safe place. As I mentioned in the introduction, there are things we, as Americans, no longer do because it is a violent, dangerous world. God's kingdom will be quite different. Verse 18 says, My people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Truly able to go to sleep at night with no fear. Fear is a horrible thing. And any one of us that had moments of fear, whether it be an approaching car accident or a dangerous circumstance, you know, there is such a thing as trauma and affects our minds. And we sometimes dream about those things that happen to us. We dream about them at night. The recurring as we go through our, the rest of our lives. Bad things can happen to us and it does affect us. But God says in his kingdom there won't be any of those things. Because Christ is going to bring a different government. He's going to bring a government that will produce an entirely different world. Over in chapter 33, verses 20 through 22, it says, Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Look upon us right here. We're celebrating one of God's appointed feasts. And hopefully we're praying that God will do this for us. Even as we gather together here. And as we go to and from our services and we go from home to come. And as we go from here, go back to home. He's watching over us. We're celebrating one of his appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem a quiet home. And he will give us those things even right now as we celebrate the feast. A tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed. It's going to be a permanent kingdom. Nor any of its cords be broken. But there the majestic Lord, the majesty of God, majesty of Christ. We read some of the description in Revelation, but it's still it. 
it's sort of mind-boggling to think about what the throne of God will be like, to see it, what it will be like when Christ rules from Jerusalem. But there the majestic Lord will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams in which no galley with oars shall sail, nor majestic ships pass by. This will be a place of peace, of harmony. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. And the Lord is our king. He will save us. He's going to save mankind. He'll watch over us. All of this, these things that we've just described here in God's God's kingdom that Jesus Christ will establish and use us to build, to rule, to serve in mercy and certain concern for all of its inhabitants, it's going to generate something for people to do. They will do this. We do this at least on three or four times each service. But this kind of society, this kind of world is going to produce song. Let's turn over to Isaiah 26. Turn back to Isaiah 26. The first four verses we'll read it. I won't read the entire chapter. These, I think these first four verses are the most relevant for right now. Chapter verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. Salvation, he won't have to put up walls for defense. People will be dwelling in safety, in peace. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. A righteous nation because the people are righteous, because they're obeying God's laws. You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For Jehovah, or it says here, Yah, but that means Jehovah, the Lord is everlasting strength. People will sing in their praises for God what God is doing for their their world, their society, their their cities, their farms, their jobs, their homes, their families, their children. They'll rejoice. The song service is a very important part of God's service. And usually the song leader talks about praising God. Those songs have purpose. We should not sing them just by rote. We should also think about what we are singing, the words that are there, and not get lost in the just the harmony. They should be beautiful, and they are. But the words should be inspiring. The words should tell us, rehearse in our minds. It's interesting about music. You know, if you try to memorize certain things, this is not hard. But it's not hard to memorize a song. You ever thought about that? Memorize the words because set to music, it just has this has this effect on you. And we can sing these words and these things sink into our minds and our brains. God is going to, he tells us that people will sing and praise him because of the world he has established. 
through Christ and through us. Get back in Isaiah 12. I think this is literal. And that day there's going to be a song. Now, I don't know if they're going to use those exact words, but there's going to be a song. And here, find here in Isaiah 12, the entire chapter of six verses, we'll read it. But this is a psalm of thanksgiving that is as a millennial setting. And in that day you will say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you can comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Jehovah the Lord is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. We will. That's a metaphoric expression that we're going to gain understanding. We're going to be pulling from God's family, the people that are there, be pulling from God, Jesus Christ, and His and the saints. This, this understanding that will produce salvation in their lives. And in that day, you will say, "Praise the Lord! Call upon His name!" Declare his deeds among the peoples and make mention that his name is exalted. Sing to the eternal, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth, everywhere. People will know Jesus Christ and his family. Cry out and shout, O inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. Christ will literally be here with his people. We will be there with the world and having a chance to teach them. And it's going to produce the joy that will result in song. Remembering God's way of life and what he has done for us. And then lastly, in closing, let's turn back to chapter 9. Isaiah 9. We'll just read part of this chapter, maybe some of the most beautiful verses in all of God's Word. It's all wonderful, but this is a wonderful chapter. But verse 2, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That's Huge, brethren. We should all, and hopefully we can think back and look back at when God first began to open our minds and deal with us. When the scales sort of began to kind of fall off little by little. And the kind of fervor, the kind of exuberance that we experienced in understanding what God was doing with mankind, and we have a chance to become part of the family of God. We get the chance to administer His government. He says, the people who walked in darkness, you and I wandered around in darkness. Now, we know not much think about it being dark. Now, I just uh, struggle a little bit reading this, but I have reading glasses. But I just had cataracts removed. And that's a little bit like walking in darkness. <laughs> you know, the doctor said on a scale of 1 to 10, your left eye is a 14. <laughs> so, you know, that, that was the first one taken off. And it suddenly is a bright new world. The sky's blue. The clouds are really white. They're not all pale gray. 
People who walk in darkness spiritually. And there was a time you and I did that. We didn't understand fully God's way of life. But they have seen a great light. Having the truth of God unveiled to us. As we should not be very careful, it talks about not lose this first love. Not lose the excitement of knowing God's way of life. And we celebrate these days, and you and I know we're not going to, you're not going to hear anything new this year. (laughs) We're going to hear the same thing. Mr. Armstrong was never embarrassed by starting his sermons by saying, why are we here? And every holy day had a particular meaning. And he rehearsed that meaning year by year by year. And for eight days, we're going to hear pretty much said differently, different themes maybe or in the sermons. But we're going to hear the same thing about God's kingdom. And I'm sure before this is all said and done, and this first sermon is sort of, I think it's sort of a, uh, a framework, hopefully, of what's to come. But you're going to hear some of these same scriptures probably in the next seven days and this afternoon. We have seen a great light. Jesus Christ's truth and his kingdom. Hopefully we appreciate this and think about that. Verse 6. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government, it's all about government. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And I won't turn there, but there is a verse in the Bible where it talks about, over in a, it, it says that I will am a father to Israel, referring to the God of the Old Testament, Jesus Christ. It was like being a father to Israel. The Everlasting Father. You now, some of us perhaps have had big brothers. That were like fathers, took care of us, watched over us, defended us at times, perhaps. But Christ says here, he pictured me going to be an everlasting father, someone that cares for the world just as God the Father does. But he's also the Prince of Peace. That verse, by the way, is in Jeremiah 31 9, where he says that Christ is like a, a father to Israel. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. I thought about this, and that I understand that the increase of his government, there would be no end. It's going to be growing through the millennium. It's going on through eternity. But the increase of his peace... You have peace? You know, there's, is there more peace? <laughs> the increase of that peace. And I just think it's directly related to the fact that the kingdom of God will keep expanding and it will always be peaceful. Everywhere that God's government is administered will be one an area of peace. There will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it, and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. 
the reality of God's kingdom. It is promised. It will come. You and I have been called to share in it. As we celebrate this first holy day of the Feast of Tabernacles, hopefully we will meditate on this, think about the great privilege that we have been given, the calling that God has extended to each one of us. Again, we have the spirit of promise. We've been begotten with God's spirit. It's a guarantee that you and I can share in the reality of God's kingdom when Jesus Christ returns.